Priest Point. We are so glad you're here with us today, especially if you're joining us for the very first time. Um, we're thrilled you're here. You know, 2020 so far hasn't brought us a lot of opportunities to celebrate. Um, this has been a challenging year. It's been a difficult year. Uh, I actually thought earlier today that if we were, you know, those you used to be able to go to those websites and you would put in some text and then it would create kind of a word map with the biggest words, with the biggest words meaning the words you use the most. I think if we did that for 2020 so far, the word that would pop out, at least that I've heard the most, is unprecedented. Um, and so this year has been unprecedented in so many ways, and it has brought us uh, not a lot of opportunity to celebrate and not a lot of good news. And this week we got some good news. And of course, that good news is the Supreme Court ruled um, to uphold LGBTQ plus rights. And this is such a huge, huge deal. And it's something we're celebrating. It doesn't mean we've done everything we need to do. It doesn't mean there's equity and true equality yet, but it does. It is an important step in that direction. And so and it happened during Pride Month. I mean, what, what symbolic timing. It should have happened a long time ago, but we celebrate that it happened right here and uh, right now in this week uh, during the month of Pride. So happy Pride, everybody. And um, that's really, really something to celebrate. Uh, we're going to continue a series that we jumped back into. It's a series we, when we started virtual gatherings. It was the series we were in. Um, and it's called RE, just R-E. And, of course, the subtitle is Reimagining, Reframing, and Reclaiming the Language of Faith. And in this series, we've been taking vocabulary from the Christian tradition, and we've been asking, are these words still significant? Do, do they still carry some sort of weight and meaning? Should we take them with us into the future of the tradition or should we leave them behind? Um, and what we're finding is a lot of these words, if they are reimagined, reframed, and reclaimed, that there's still something to them. There's something meaningful, um, that, they, that there's a meaningful role they can still play in our vocabulary. And today I want to talk about the miraculous. And I think miracles, and we'll talk about other words for it in a bit, but I think miracles, the very subject alone elicits some pretty strong response. Um, it, it's a pretty um, it's, a, it's a pretty touchy subject for lots of people. And what I've found over the years is that people tend to gravitate toward the extremes. And what I mean is that people tend to go one way, which sees miracles as in a more literal way, and then another way where they see them as being um, something else. So let's just start with the first one. I think the one extreme perspective is that miracles are literally and factually true that every single report of a miracle in the Bible happened just like it says it did in the Bible. So when the, we see a, a story about a miracle, like, for example, in the book of Joshua, the sun stands still, so the Israelites have more time to kill people, right? And of course, in that day and age, they had this understanding, this cosmology of the sun moving around the earth. And since then, we've learned that actually it's a heliocentric universe, and the earth and everything else in our solar system is going around the sun. But if you have this perspective, you'd say, if the Bible says it stood still, what that would really mean is the earth stopped rotating and moving, um, and that if it says it, it happened that way. And for many who hold this per perspective, that everything happened literally, factually, just the way it's reported in the Bible, you know, people who hold this perspective, often their entire faith-slash-belief system hinges on this. It all rests on the miraculous. To give you an example of this, a, a few years ago, there's uh, I have a friend who lives in a town where one of the larger fundamentalist churches, every year they put on what we would call a passion play. They put on an Easter, Easter play. Uh, and one year he got invited and he didn't want to go, but a friend had asked him and he didn't want to hurt his friend's feelings, so he went. Um, and after he went, he came back and he told me about his experience. Well, first of all, 
He got there. I, I don't know if he was late or he got there and he ended up being seated on the front row. He was so close to the action that during um, one of the scenes where the guards were, were beating Jesus, some fake blood flew out and landed on his pants. Uh, and I actually talked to him this week and said, hey, I'm going to tell that story. And he's like, you know, they, it ruined those pants. So he was that close to the action. But when he came back and we were talking about his experience, he said, you know, what's interesting is the entire play, the entire production centered on Jesus performing one miracle after another. Miracle, 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 boom, crucifixion. And in some ways, the story didn't make sense. Like, why are they crucified? This guy's going around healing. He's performing exorcisms. He's doing these amazing things. What is he being crucified for? Believing in universal health care? Like, why would Jesus be crucified? And he said, essentially, that it seemed like their entire faith was built on miracles literally happening. If you took those away, then there wouldn't be anything left. And so that's one extreme. If the miracles aren't literally all true, then it's all a lot. None of it's true. If Jesus didn't walk on water, then Jesus never existed, right? If Moses didn't part the Red Sea, then everything's fake, phony, fake, unbelievable. So that's one extreme. The other position tends to be just sort of at the other pole. It tends to be a wholesale rejection of the miraculous. This perspective sees any belief in anything resembling a miracle or something unexplainable. It sees it as a silly superstition. Like if I have to believe in chariots of fire, taking a guy up into the sky, if I've got to believe in a guy being swallowed by a fish, hanging out in there for three days and then being puked back up on the beach. If that's what you're telling me, I have to believe, if I have to believe that somebody who's been dead for days has been raised back to life in the world, if you're telling me that's what I have to believe, then I am completely out. I want nothing to do with it. It's silly. It's superstition. It has no place in the world we find ourselves in in the 21st century. Now, the problem with this perspective is that it assumes that if I can't explain it, it must be false. And here's the thing. There are lots of things I can't explain. One of the, and here's just an example. I love flying. I love flying, which is odd because I am terrified of heights. Uh, I know people always think that's funny because I'm 6'7", 6'8", and I am a height, I guess. Uh, And yet I am terrified of heights. Being up on a ladder, being on the second story of a shopping mall, like I'm just not comfortable if I can see the bottom So I'm terrified of heights, but I absolutely love the experience of flying. I like going to the airport. I like getting there early. I like getting a coffee. I like sitting at the gate. I like the process that builds up to, because I always fly Southwest. So I like the process that leads up to standing in line. If you happen to get a group and you're feeling really good about yourself and you board the plane. And then when you're on the plane, there's so many amazing things that happen. They bring you a snack and they bring you a drink. And I'm going to just say you should go ginger ale all the way. It's just a great experience. There's just one part of the process that completely and totally freaks me out. Taking off. Taking off scares me to no end because it always happens. We begin the taxi and we begin and we're starting to go faster and faster and we're about to go up, up and away. And that moment where you sort of leave the ground, you can feel everything sort of sit down and then you hear the uh, uh, wheels being raised up. And I always have the same thought. Why in the world does this work? It, it, It shouldn't work. We are in a massive hunk of metal full of hundreds of people with all of their luggage and pets, and ginger ale. Like, how in the world does this work? How do we actually achieve 
liftoff. Once we're up and we're at cruising altitude, I'm fine. Landing, I totally get how that happens. And in and, and one sense, I get takeoff, right? I've read about it. Science, it's a thing. Um, I, I, you know, you can explain it, but there's something for me about, like, why does this work? Because it goes against everything that feels possible. And yet, there we are at 36,000 feet going hundreds of miles an hour, and it seems pretty impossible. And so what I'll say is this, I, I think it's important to hold on to some humility in these discussions. Now, I've been in both camps. I, I was raised in a, if the miracles aren't true, then none of it's true camp. And, and then I sort of, as I went through the unraveling of my faith and beginning to question and beginning to reread the Bible and come at it with a different lens, I went through the whole, well, like if I have to believe any of this stuff, then it's kind of silly. And I, I think both of those positions, again, I've held them. I think both of those positions actually miss the point. I think the extremes fail to ask the most important question. The most important question, I think, is what do these stories mean? Because that's the point of a story. The point of the story isn't just to tell the story. The point of the story is that inside a story, there's meaning. It, it's doing something. I mean, the point of telling the, the stories of Jesus' miracles isn't that, like, Jesus could do neat tricks and he was great at a party, but that's it. The point is the meaning. And actually, in John's telling of the Jesus story in the Gospel of John, John doesn't even call them miracles. John calls them signs. Now, what do signs do? Signs point us in a direction. The signs, maybe we could put it like this. Signs point, but they aren't the point. Like if you were trying to get to, I don't know, let's say North Carolina, and you're driving in North Carolina, you wouldn't stop at the first sign that lists North Carolina and gives you a certain set of mileage and say, I'm here. Because the sign is not North Carolina. The sign's pointing in the direction. And I think that's the point of, I love that John uses that language of signs because it is saying that what Jesus is doing isn't the end in of itself but it's actually pointing to a bigger truth, a bigger reality. So I think that's why for me, I think to talk about the miraculous, it would actually, there's a third approach beyond the sort of wholesale embrace and wholesale rejection of the sort of the supernatural into saying, what, what if we approach these stories and look for a third way, a way that was helpful and generative? What if we looked for meaning? I love what Marcus Borg, probably one of my all-time favorite, the late Marcus Borg, one of my all-time favorite writers, uh, he, he says, believe whatever you want about whether these stories happen the way they're written. Now let's talk about what these stories mean. We could spend hours debating literal versus metaphorical, but we could actually get to the end of that discussion. Neither, nobody would have proof because it doesn't exist, and we would have nothing to show for it. But if we begin to ask the question of meaning, and I think that it allows us to engage the stories in a way that can actually be um, challenging. It can shape us and it can be very, very powerful. And I, I really do believe that it's how the authors and communities that created these texts that we call now the scriptures, I think it's how they intended us to engage them. Not to get lost in the weeds about details we can't know, but instead to look for the, what is the sign pointing to? What is the bigger story? What is the bigger truth? What are we being invited into? We could debate whether a human could live in the belly of a fish for three days. But that actually fails to engage the meaning of the Jonah story. Right? The meaning of the Jonah story is if we don't learn to love our enemies, if we don't learn to take another path besides the path of violent revolution, we're going to get swallowed up by violence. 
We could argue about whether or not Jesus gave sight to the blind, but that misses the point. In those stories, I, I think this is the point. In those stories, the physically blind, they see Jesus and they hear and get his message. And it's those who can see physically who are actually blind spiritually. There's something powerful going on in that story. We could try to medically diagnose those who in the scriptures are portrayed as being possessed by an unclean spirit, but that actually misses the point of the story, that the land and the people of Israel, of Judea, of Palestine, were possessed by the empire, and Jesus was offering an alternative way to exercise the demon of empire through nonviolent enemy love. We could try to scientifically prove or disprove that the dead can or can't be raised, but that misses the testimony of the people and communities behind these stories, because in Jesus, they found a new life that transcends even death. Which is why for the writer of John, the writer of John could put these words on Jesus' lips. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who trust in me will live even though they die. Right? That was the testimony of a community of people who had found in Jesus a way of being and living and experiencing the world that transcended all boundaries, even the boundaries of death. But beyond all this, I think the most miraculous thing that Jesus does is not the healing of a physical malady or injury or illness. I think the most miraculous, wonder-working thing Jesus does actually happens on the social level. We tend to get lost in sort of the theatrics of a thing. But I think what Jesus is doing in these stories of healings, of exorcisms, of um, meeting people and bringing them back to life. I think what's going on in these stories is Jesus is doing something at the social level that actually was transformative. And I think it's why he gained so much traction. I think he's doing something, even feeding 5,000, feeding 4,000. There's something happening at a social level that is transformative. Uh, I never saw this before, but uh, several years ago, maybe, maybe almost 10 years ago now, I read John Dominic Crossan's biography of Jesus. And that, that is a dense book and it's hard <laughs> to get through at times, but it's, profound and brilliant and insightful. And I love what he says about this specific issue. He talks about Jesus' ecstatic vision and social program sought to rebuild a society upward from its grassroots, but on principles of religious and economic egalitarianism, with free healing brought directly to the peasant homes and free sharing of whatever they had in turn, return. The deliberate conjunction of magic and meal, miracle and table, Free compassion and open commensality, which is uh, essentially means table fellowship, open table fellowship, was a challenge launched not just at Judaism's strictest purity regulations or even the Mediterranean's patriarchal combination of honor and shame, patronage and clientage, but at civilization's eternal inclination to draw lines, invoke boundaries, establish hierarchies, and maintain discriminations. That last part, that what Jesus is doing, his mission, is not just about what's going on in Palestine and Judea in the first century. It's something larger. It's about this, this way that when human beings get in community, we tend to have this, this, these boundary lines, these um, hierarchies and discriminations that come into existence, that prop up power and that marginalize and that keep certain people away from power and away from enough. Uh, and Jesus comes and does something radically challenging to those systems. It's almost like when you see Jesus doing all the miracles, if you understand what's happening at a social level, of course they crucify him. Of course they have to get rid of this guy. Let me, a few examples. In the Gospels, there's a woman 
who was made unclean by a physical condition she had. And Jesus was actually going somewhere else to do another miracle at the time. And there was a crowd that was pressing around him so much that he was uh, almost crushed. And this woman makes her way and she can't get to Jesus. So she gets down and like crawls her way through and reaches up and grabs the hem of his robe and she's healed. Now, understanding that in the culture of this day, her uncleanness was contagious. So everybody she touches in this crowd is unclean. And now she's made this holy man, Jesus, unclean. And yet the opposite happens. Jesus isn't made unclean, but his cleanness is contagious. And she is healed. And at the end of the healing, when he finally figures out who it was that touched him and she admits it, he, he actually brings her in front of the entire community and pronounces her healing. Now, what's the miracle? I mean, believe whatever you want about whether or not this woman crawled through a crowd and was able to reach Jesus and was healed. When Jesus is not afraid to touch her, but he brings her in front of the community and shows solidarity with her, this woman who had been excluded, this woman who had been left out, this woman who had been marginalized, and Jesus is standing here with her in solidarity, bringing her back into the community that had excommunicated her, restoring her to relationships. There's a man possessed by a legion, which is a Roman military term of unclean spirits. So right away, we sort of get the impression we're dealing with some other level of meaning here. And when Jesus meets him, he's living among the tombs, he's howling, and he's cutting himself. He's in deep, deep pain. And when the dust settles on that story, I won't spoil it for you, you can read it in the Gospel of Mark, but when the dust settles on that story, this man who was in deep pain and who was isolated from the community is sitting, restored, and reconnected with his community. And I would argue that almost every story in the New Testament where Jesus does some sort of wonder work, that if you go and look at that story, there's a social component to that miracle. Where it's not just something physical, but there's something more than physical happening. Jesus is restoring people. Story after story, miracle after miracle, we find Jesus standing in solidarity with those who've been excluded and bringing them back to the community and saying, welcome them, embrace them, give them back their seat at the table. Story after story, miracle after miracle, we find Jesus calling for the community to embrace and include the excluded ones. And actually, Perhaps my favorite miracle story, um, especially in the Gospel of Mark, involves a man who had a skin disease. And we often call this leprosy today, um, but it's actually in the Bible, it's a broad category that refers to all sorts of different diseases. So we don't actually know what he had. We just know that lepers in this, in this particular time were the untouchables in a community. They were seen as highly con- unclean and highly contagious. And so they were forced to live outside the community, sometimes in leper colonies, sometimes just on their own. And they would be... Uh, sort of what they had to do when somebody came around them or came near them, they had to announce their uncleanness to anybody who came near. They would have to to say essentially, I am unclean, avoid me, (laughs) stay away from me. Um, Can you imagine what that does to a human being? When not only are you alienated and excluded and marginalized, but now even the possibility of community, the possibility of human touch, you have to announce your uncleanness. And so in this particular story, it happens, uh, I think in Mark, it's in Mark chapter 1, verse 40 through 45, where Jesus has an encounter with a man who had been sort of pushed out, isolated, and forgotten due to his disease. And what happens in the story is the man sees Jesus, and he comes up to Jesus, and he falls on his knees, and he says to Jesus, if you want, you can make me clean. 
if you want, you can make me queen. Now, this is such a risk, right? Because probably what everybody else would have said is, get away from me, right? Like, I don't, you're, you're unclean. You're going to make me unclean. I, I, I can't do anything for you. You should go try to find somebody else. And what happens is he falls at Jesus' feet. Jesus looks at this man. He reaches out and touches him and says, I want to be clean. And this man who is isolated and alienated, this man who is excluded and forgotten, in that moment, he feels the human touch of Jesus and he's healed. Jesus sees him and Jesus doesn't run away from him. And instead, Jesus embraces him and in doing so brings him back into community. Jesus shows solidarity, and by showing solidarity with this man, Jesus proclaims that whatever the state of his physical condition, whether he was healed from leprosy literally or whether it was some, like whatever that situation was, what Jesus does in embracing him is showing that he belongs, that he's part of the community and that he shouldn't be excluded. I think what Jesus does is so much bigger than physical. I think Jesus is bringing healing at a societal level. He's seeing people who have been pushed to the margins and forgotten, and he's pulling them back into the community. And, and he's actually bringing peace. And one of the things Jesus often says at the end of a healing is go in peace, right? Because peace has been made. Shalom has been restored. People are becoming in relationship together again. Once again, in John, the same Jesus goes on to say, in John 14, I assure you that whoever believes in me, trusts in me, will do the works that I do. They will, even do. they will do even greater works than these. Those who trust me will do what I do, and they will do even greater. Which, I'm going to be honest, almost every time I've read that, I've, I thought it sounded a little far-fetched. Right? Like, does Jesus really believe that in, in, in the John story? Or is this just sort of him saying, oh, give it, you know, you're not going to be as good as me, but go give it your best try? Because, like, am I going to heal the sick? Am I going to go walk on water? Am I, am I going to raise the dead? That doesn't seem very possible or probable. But if we think about miracles this other way, this sort of meaning way, not just whether they happened or didn't happen, but if we engage them at the level of meaning, and if we think about Jesus' miracles as being uh, about including and restoring excluded people back in the community, then it's actually possible that we might do greater things. And I think even now we are, we are in the world trying to do greater things. Right? We are trying to bring inclusion, embrace, and healing in the world. And the problem is that the church has often, this community launched from the life and teachings of Jesus. So it should be all about including and bringing people in. The problem is the church has often been the center of resistance to inclusion. And even more troubling, the church has often been the persecutor of those who are simply looking for their rightful seat at the table. Not that the table belongs to the church or the table belongs to this person and they're letting them. No, no, they have a rightful place at the table. Jesus practiced a radical hospitality and a radically open and inclusive table. And it seems that that message that originated in the Jesus movement began to be dampened and diluted as the Christian tradition moved from Palestine into the larger Greco-Roman world. The evidence is found in the very pages of the New Testament itself. As later writers, writing in the names of people like Paul and, and Peter, they tried to soften and conventionalize the radical message that the Jesus community 
in the Jesus community, there were no distinctions of power. There were no distinctions of relation, in, in relationship. Notice, this is what Paul said in a genuine letter that Paul wrote. There's, in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's uh, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Right? So in this early Christian community, there was this radical um, uh, sharing of power, sharing of relationships, sharing of resources. They were essentially, there, was, there were no, there wasn't a pecking order. People lived in radical hospitality and community with one another. And all the ways we divide up the world are met by the radically inclusive, boundary-breaking love of God that we've experienced in Christ. That's what Paul's getting at. What we experienced in Jesus shattered all the boundaries and all the categories and all the ins and outs and all that these people are good and these people are bad. It shattered all of that for us. Yet in the years after Paul's own death, others would write in his name, telling women to be silent and submissive, slaves to be obedient, and establishing power relationships and hierarchy in the church. In the 300s, when the church was co-opted by the Roman emperor Constantine, this became further entrenched. The focus became on orthodoxy and all the theological gymnastics you have to do to make their orthodoxy actually work as orthodoxy. The boundaries to inclusion weren't being removed. They were actually being reinforced. And depending on what and with whom the, the Christian emperor and Christian emperor agreed, Christians would actually use violence to eradicate whatever they saw as a heretical threat to their newly established orthodoxy. Then we, Christians, decided that the Great Commission meant that Christians should explore, discover, and conquer new lands for Christ, treating the indigenous inhabitants of those places in the most unchristlike ways. It was sanctioned by the Pope, the Vicar of Christ, the one who essentially represents, and there, were, there wasn't Catholic, this was just the church, the church that existed. It was sanctioned by the Pope. It's called the Doctrine of Discovery, and it launched the terror and horror that we are still living in the shadow of and feeling the effects of today. Listen to these words from Pope Nicholas V. We grant you by these present documents, with our apostolic authority, full and free permission to invade, search out, capture, and subjugate the Saracens and pagans and any other unbelievers and enemies of Christ, wherever they may be. Enemies of Christ? What did Jesus teach about enemies? Love them. And this Pope is saying, we give you the authority to invade, search out, capture, and subjugate them. Wherever they may be, as well as their kingdoms, duchies, counties, principalities, and other property, and to reduce their persons into perpetual servitude. My God. And we have been living out of I mean, this is, this is essentially the Western world expanding. And the carnage of history that we are still experiencing in this country with deep anguish and pain today was born out of the mission of the church or a misunderstanding and a misguided mission of the church. And of course, there were inquisitions and witch trials stealing resources under the guise of taking Christ to the unbelieving world. The Atlantic slave trade, segregation, sexism, exclusion and persecution of the LGBTQ plus community, the continued failure of white evangelicals to, de to denounce white supremacy, admit their privilege and work for equity. The list of failures in our tradition is long and exhausting. And yet, here we are. 
and I am more compelled and more impelled and more in love with the Jesus story than ever. Because what I see in the Jesus story is radically different than what I just shared with you. I see a radically open table. I see a willingness to transcend boundaries and barriers. I see a willingness and a longing to embrace and include. And that's why I think there's hope. We have the opportunity to change the future. We cannot change the past. We also can't deny it, and we can't excuse it. We have to own it. We have to repent of it. And then learn how to do it differently. And then we have an opportunity to change the future. We can. And I believe that Grace Point is here for this. I believe we can embrace the call to be miracle workers. To work for the full inclusion of all of God's children to stand with those excluded by unjust systems and to reach out in a welcoming embrace, the same welcoming embrace of love that Jesus reached out with and that Jesus' first communities reached out with. And you know what I'm finding? That is less about theological orthodoxy and doctrinal purity and more about embodying the ethos of Jesus and his movement in the way we live, spend, serve, vote, and engage in the world. That's our mission if we choose to accept it. That's our calling. Not to expand a Christian empire, but to like yeast working through dough or like a, a plant spreading out on the ground to, to take love and compassion and goodness and service and embrace and inclusion and to take it everywhere we go in the world. That is our calling.